Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time hearing us, welcome. Every week, we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, great behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films and pop culture films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and so much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go, musician, also podcaster, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and a, a big pop culturist, retro gamer. Gosh, man, what I you know, I just have fun. That's what we do. And you can email me, Al John, A-L-J-O-N at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, a filmmaker, author, and welcome to the podcast. I am actually in the Skull Rock mobile studio broadcasting from New York, a very wet and rainy New York, I might add. And I would say if you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Yes. And you can also email me at Dave at skullrockpodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, Al John, how are you? I'm on the road. Oh, man. It, it, it's great. First of all, it's great to see that you're on the road. I saw, you know, some of your pics of you actually boarding an airplane and, you know, getting back to some semblance of real life instead of this quarantine life that we've all been living for the year. So, you know, uh, I just wished you well, and and looks like you got to your destination nice and safe, and hopefully without incident. It was a very smooth flight, I have to say, but it was a packed flight. Oh, it was there wasn't an empty seat on the plane. Oh my, yeah. Did, did it make you feel uh, uncomfortable? That was that was amazing. I, I still felt comfortable. I, you know, I took all the precautions, and you know, I, I was double masked. I had a KN95 mask, and I had my cloth mask on top nice, of it, nice. and all of that. But you know, it was it was felt really good to travel, and and it feels really great to see my mom after oh. uh, a little more than a year. Yes, the belated birthday. Did she get the Did she get the new ride? Did you uh, Did she take you around in her new ride? Driving yeah, around town. I mean, she's, uh, you know, uh, almost doing donuts in intersections. <laughs> you know? uh, That's but, what I like to hear. <laughs> no, she, she's doing she's doing terrific. Oh. Hey, you know, one thing I wanted to mention to you, because I read this in the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Uh, here's the headline, Al John. Mm. It says, Cinema Chains Mall Pushing Back at Disney's Plans for Black Widow, mm. you know, because Disney announced they're going to do a, a day and date release yeah. on uh, Disney Plus with, yes. uh, and the movie theaters. That's right. And and you know what struck me about this headline? I, I looked at it and I thought they're reacting to what the studios, the cinemas, the movie houses are reacting to what the studios are doing with their releases. Yeah. And, and that to me is backwards. The movie theaters need to be thinking about how do they make the movie going experience better for people to say, hey, I don't want to watch Black Widow on Disney Plus. I want to go to a movie theater to see it. Exactly. Yes. You know, and that and that's really, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about, you know, what's going to happen with movie theaters and, you know, people doing streaming and this and that. Well, I've said all along and I'll continue to say there are certain movies like 
Disney's Black Widow, the Marvel Black Widow, that need to be seen on a big screen. Mm-hmm. That's what the filmmakers want of those films. They want us. They want the audience to see them on a big screen in a movie house in a communal atmosphere. Yes. you know, with with other fans. Yeah. Uh, don't you agree? Yes, I want to hear the roar of the fans reacting the same way I want to react and, and, and yell and scream and, and cry and do everything that you want to do and emote um, because it's a communal experience to me. It's so communal. Can you imagine if the last episode of The Mandalorian was able to be shown in a movie theater? Can you imagine? <sighs> you would see rows of people the entire theater jump up in thunderous applause at luke skywalker showing up to rescue grogu and the rest of the rest of the the family there uh, in the cockpit of that star destroyer you just you you they would erupt and then um you know that's the kind of thing i want with black widow you know it's the same thing you want when you see um when you see the james bond movie or or any of the films, you know, when I see the Eternals or Shang-Chi or Cruella, whatever it is, I'm, yeah, I want to be able to to share that with the audience. That's why so many people love reaction videos on YouTube, because you relive the moment through the eyes of someone that has the same passion and love that you do for these franchises. And you just want to roar, rip, roar, scream, yell and and uh, throw things. You just want to, you know, you want to experience it. It's a very visceral and emotional experience, I think, that you can only get in the theater. No, and I, I absolutely agree. And I have to say that to me, I think the studio should do what the studios are going to do. You know, if they want to do day and date releases, do a day and date release. It gives the audience the choice. But but the theaters need to step up and make the experience of going to the theaters a great experience, a destination, and an event for people to say, "Let's go see that on at the movie theater." I want let's to. not watch it on you know Disney Plus or uh, HBO Max or Netflix or whatever. Right. You know. So my as a as a moviegoer, as a movie patron, a patron, I I want to feel safe. I, I want to feel safe going. I want to feel like it's being cleaned. I want to know that it's it's not a grubby theater that have sticky floors. I want, I want to know that it's going to be cleaned and I think they need to put that message out there. And I have not seen that message. Have you, have you seen it? No, I haven't either. And, and, and you know, something, everybody in the service industry, you know, uh, having just flown to New York, uh, American airlines has done a fantastic job uh, sanitizing their planes. Yep. I, I felt very comfortable uh, on, on, on board the flight and, um, you know, I, I know that they've cleaned it. They've added that messaging to their uh, safety message uh, on, on the uh, in-flight entertainment systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're very conscious of making sure everybody having to wear a mask. And, you know, so everybody's, you know, being respectful and feeling good about that, I think. Uh, at least I felt good about it. Well, I think, Dave, you hit the nail on the head. As a consumer, give me the reason give me a reason to go to the theaters for the for the studios it's all about quality of film and storytelling give me a reason to go and i'll go and when it comes to the theaters give me let me know that i will be safe and that i'm getting a great value for leaving the house that's all we ask 
I I can't agree more. And you know that that, that we might as well segue into our news segments mm-hmm. because um, we do have the uh, Disney Cruella official trailer too to talk about mm-hmm. real briefly. Uh, but let's 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 do the news. Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Uh, you sent me this, Dave. You sent me this. And it's an interesting note from Seeking Alpha. Uh, The headline first reads, Disney's chief human resources officer is set to depart. Um, Jane Parker is leaving the company. However, that's not the only bit of news. Uh, Not only is Disney stock rebounding, but uh, there's a Bob, uh, there is a Michael Eisner. I almost said Bob Iger. There's a Michael Eisner uh, note in there. What is that note all about? You know, uh, that uh, is about the fact that Michael Eisner, you know, he he purchased the Topps trading card company. You know, they put out baseball cards and football and hockey cards and all of that. Uh, Michael Eisner is taking that company public in what has become the rage on Wall Street, uh, a blank check company, a SPAC, as they call it, a special acquisition company. What? A special purpose acquisition company. Oh. So they're they're essentially taking Topps uh, trading card company and they're going public and it's valued at a $1.3 billion deal. Oh. But I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, here's this story on Disney chief human resources officer to depart <laughs> and, and stuck in there is this little tidbit about Michael Eisner and they're seemingly too unrelated. You know, uh, other than Disney, you know, they're they're both former Disney or one will be a former and the other is a former Disney. It's amazing to me. Well, you had me at blank check for one. I was like, what? Michael Eisner blank check. What is this all about? You know, but I had you know, I didn't know that he had uh, acquired tops because yeah, quite a number of years ago yeah. after he left Disney. No, I had no idea. And uh, yeah, yeah well, I, he's one of those elusive people because he doesn't give a lot of, inter- he hasn't given any interviews since he left Disney. I guess a lot of that has to do from his non-disclosure that he signed when Niger took over the company. But still, I want to hear from Eisner at some point because he has so many stories I want to know about from Paramount to Disney. You know, I I don't know if if you're going to hear those things. The interesting thing, though, about the Topps Trading Card Company is that I'm wondering if they're going to get in on these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens that are (sighs) becoming a rage in the art world. And certainly some celebrities, uh, sports celebrities, are putting out these uh, NFTs. Tease. I I don't even know what to think. I, I did some research on it over the past few weeks because even my company is kind of, you know, on this, you know, how do we do yeah. this, Al John? How do we do an NFT? And I said, I I really I don't know. And I don't know if maybe that rage is kind of crested, you know. I don't I don't know, but it's something to to watch out for. Um 
I, I would say don't don't bet on it cresting. Uh, really, I think this I think this is going to be like cryptocurrencies. Yes, uh, you know Bitcoin and uh, Bitcoin Cash and uh, uh, Ethereum and some of these other <laughs> uh, cri- you know cri- cryptocurrencies. But uh, <laughs> NFTs, non fungible tokens, uh, may actually be be uh, uh, the future of collecting uh, oh. of uh, you know maybe trading cards. Who knows? I don't know what they're going to do with it. I don't even know if they're going to get involved with it. But when I read that little bit about Michael Eisner and the Topps Trading Company, I thought to myself, well, that seems like a natural. They should be putting out NFTs as well. I bet you, I bet you they will. You know what? The, yeah. the timing, the timing is perfect for that. It really is. Yeah. Um, how about timing for Cruella? So uh, Cruella, you sent me the official trailer number two. And I have to say, man, I love the look of this film. I really love it. I think it looks great. It looks like a, it literally looks as if Debbie Harry uh, went back in time from the CBGB's New York scene. And you know this, Dave, because you lived it, Um, went back in time or Studio 54 and just Warhol'd it all up. And um, it looks really amazing. And let me say, you know, I never thought that I'd have another man crush at this age in my life. I never, I never really would, you know, I mean, I think I mentioned how much of a crush I had on Sandra Bullock when I was, you know, in college and, and, you know, that that's faded. Of course, I'm a happily married man now with children, but the restraining order is still in the place. the restraining order is still in place. But I have to say, Emma Stone, she's my girl. Emma Stone's my girl. Emma Stone will forever be my girl. She is the bomb. She is so good. You know, uh, it, it, it's interesting. I I watched. I, I like the second trailer better than the first trailer. Yes. Uh, but I felt the same thing that I felt on the first trailer in that they're turning Cruella into Disney's uh, Harlequin. Yes. You know, it's it, she. She's like the uh, the Disney version of Warner Brothers DC uh, Harlequin. <sighs> You know, and Margot Robbie, you know, the Suicide Squad is coming out. Margot Robbie is amazing. She is so good. And those Red Band trailers, wow, man. It's something else for Suicide Squad, too. But I have to say, man, this film looks freaking great. Like, if I wasn't on the hype train uh, back then, which I truly was on the hype train for this, I am totally on board, and I am whoop, whoop, hitting the caboose. Uh, It is looking good. I love it. Yeah, and, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing this in the movie theaters. Absolutely. Well, you won't have to wait too much longer because it will yeah. be hitting theaters and Disney Plus with Premiere Access on May 20. Yeah. Um, another speaking thing. Of, could, speaking of movie theaters, uh, right? Speaking of theaters, <laughs> shall we talk about uh, Star Trek? Yeah, I can't wait to see this one. So, I, I've loved yeah. every Star Trek movie they've made. Well, this was a very important, you know, um, Star Trek decided to adopt this um, first contact day, which happens on April, what is it, April 4th or something like that or something? Yeah, so it, it happens like April 4th, April 5th. You know, Paramount just loaded up the guns and decided to say, I'm going to, we're going to launch this trailer for Picard season two and bring Q back, John Delancey. Oh yeah, everything's great, hype train. And then they said, okay, Discovery, the next season's going to be great. I'm like, oh my God. Gosh, everything looks killer. And then they have this uh, Nickelodeon special uh, series with um, Kate Mulgrew, which is an amazing actress. She played um, Captain Janeway in Voyager. She's coming back. Okay. And then they low keyed this. It kind of under the radar, not official, but it looks like J.J. Abrams is pairing up with Paramount once again, which to me, 
I'm surprised. I am super surprised because I thought J.J. Abrams was locked up with Warner Brothers and doing exclusive Warner Brothers and not doing anything else. But apparently he is. Uh, apparently he's being involved in this Paramount made Star Trek movie, which is set to be released on June 9th of, get this, 2023. I think that's a really good long distance planning. And uh, by then, the movie theaters will be packed again. Yes, I, I'm looking forward to it. And there's been a lot of teases by Zachary Quinto, who played Spock, and and uh, the various cast members. You know, uh, I'm coming back. You know, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this. It's gonna be great. And then Chris Pine saying he'd be open to it. I, I mean, he was like, uh, he was like very dodgy about going back to Star Trek. In fact, I think they this is like their third attempt to resurrect the Star Trek franchise in film. But now. Uh, Paramount uh, is is on board. They're doing their thing, and CBS has decided that you know, as we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, merging um, their streaming platforms and streamlining the people and doing some cuts, and and they have this one prevailing you know, Paramount Plus and movie architecture. I think Star Trek fans are going to see a merging of the two franchises like they've never seen before. Now that they're back together. I think it's going to be great. And uh, Chris Pine will be back. He's a great Captain Kirk. Man, Chris Pine is the bomb. I'm really a big fan of those films as well. Um, Sad news. Sad news. A little bit of regrets. You know, DMX had passed away from. Mm. And, uh, you know, DMX, X Gun, give it to you. You know, just one of the the great uh, rap and hip hop uh, voices there in the 2000s had passed away. But, of course... Um, giving tribute are the fans and, you know, um, the Deadpool scene where, you know, X going to give it to you, of course, for the X-Men and, and Deadpool. Uh, there was a lot of tributes made. So, uh, you know, memorial details haven't been uh, mentioned yet, but I'd have to say that uh, uh, DMX was definitely a parte when we would have, when I would throw parties back in the day and go to clubs and different things like that, DMX was definitely an integral part of that playlist back in the day. So his fans will, we will miss DMX for sure. Absolutely. Um, and and we yeah. also lost uh, James Hampton, who was in F Troop, The Longest Yard, and Teen Wolf, among uh, many other things. Uh, he was 84 years old. Unbelievable. You know, I mean, he was like your favorite dad. Um, you know, in Teen Wolf, that's where I knew him being, yeah, um, yeah. being the dad in Teen Wolf. And he was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a werewolf, you know, now my son's a werewolf and we're going to be okay, son. Like that was the kind of, you know, dad, you know, wh- when you're going through this, you want a father to kind of be that understanding dad. It's no big deal, son. We got this, we can do this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and F Troop I, I remember him from, uh, F Troop. Yeah. You know, with uh, DeForest Kelly and Larry Storch and, you know, that cast. Speaking uh, of Star Trek. That was a, that was a great uh, sitcom. Absolutely. No, I mean, he will be missed. It's hard to believe, you know, um, these folks aren't getting any younger. and But it's great that their careers will be immortalized uh, forever in TV and film. So um, our hearts go out to the Hampton family. Um, James Hampton will be missed at the age of eight. Yeah. Well, I think it's time for us to uh, go to the green room. And I do want to uh, let people know that uh, not only uh, do we have Dean Yeagle coming up, uh, but we have a surprise guest with Dean Yeagle. And I, we're, I, I, I think we should just go to our interview segment and I'll let everybody in on it. Bam, let's do it. 
Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, I have to tell you, I am very excited because we had a little bit of a surprise in the green room today. Oh, I love surprises. Uh, we we have a wonderful animator and cartoonist, Dean Yeagle. Uh, he's done cartoons for Playboy. He's worked at most of the major studios. He was uh, uh, an artist and animator in, in uh, New York City, uh, working, doing commercials and other types of films out of New York for a while. And we have his good friend and a friend of mine, uh, Nancy Beeman, who is an animator, a professor, an author, a cartoonist, uh, and a really great talent uh, uh, working in animation. And she's a fellow Cal Arshan. So I want to welcome Dean and Nancy to the show. How are you guys doing? Welcome. Fine. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Hi, Dean. Nancy, how are you? Okay, thank you. Excellent. Well, you know, we we were telling uh, folks that we were having Dean Yeagle on to talk about uh, animation in New York City. And and a lot of people don't realize it, but animation in New York City has a long, deep history. I mean, you can go back to the 20s, uh, the teens with Fleischer, uh, the Fleischer Studios, Pat Sullivan doing Felix the Cat. Uh, and there was a bunch of others uh, uh, out of the New York area. And Dean, how how did you get involved with doing animation in in New York City? Well, I I started in Philadelphia uh, when I was 19. I got a job in a little Philadelphia studio called Animation Arts Associates. And uh, then I had to go in the service. It was was the Vietnam era. And uh, so I joined the Navy for four years. And then uh, when I got out of there, I, I came to New York uh, to do um, animation for some larger companies. And there were a lot of companies in New York at the time uh, doing commercials uh, for the most part. And um, and I uh, went to Howard Beckerman and, and uh, uh, he was the only name that I knew at the time. And I walked all around New York City because he gave me the, the names of all the studios in New York. And uh, I was hired uh, that day by uh, Jack Zander. Uh, he had just lost a, um, a designer. So I was hired first as a designer. And, uh, and, but I had a reel with me of stuff that I had done before. And so uh, ultimately for him, I became an animator and a director, uh, you know, as time went by. And uh, that's where I met Nancy. And, and how how robust was uh, was the animation business when you were was it it was concentrated mostly with advertising I take it right doing commercials and yes. more sh- short form type stuff for corporations yeah, yeah uh, commercials were a big thing there and uh, bigger than in any other part of the country uh, at the time and um, Jack Zander had worked for MGM. Uh, he he was the Jerry expert on the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, and uh, so he um, he had his own company originally, Pelican Films. But uh, when I got into it, it was uh, Xander's Animation Parlor, and um, and he was the biggest company I would say in New York at the time. Uh, did an awful lot of commercials and wonderful stuff. And uh, he was a great guy to work for because we got to meet people from his past as well. Uh, Preston Blair 
worked for him uh, on a freelance basis. Preston lived in West, uh, Westport, Connecticut. And Emery Hawkins uh, was, uh, was a spectacular animator who worked for him uh, freelance. So, uh, so I got to meet them and uh, you know, that, was, that was wonderful. Uh, I knew, I certainly knew Preston Blair because I knew I had his book. Uh, his animation book, the Walter Foster book, was how I started playing around with animation myself. Uh, and uh, I finally got him to sign it. And this right here, this desk, belonged uh -huh. to Preston Blair. Actually. Wow. But uh, it was one that uh, he was going to form his own company to do features at one point, and he had a lot of desks uh, to sell. So, uh, you know, I... I one of them. But, uh. you, you know, it's funny you mentioned that for uh, Walter Foster book. Uh, that was my first animation book I ever had. It was sort of an oversized uh, uh, paperback uh, book on uh, talking about animation, how to, how to create animation, how to do it. That's right. Yes. And there was well, actually when I was in in uh, Philadelphia, um, one of the animators there had his original book, which was uh, the one that he had done with all kinds of MGM characters in it. Wow. And he had to uh, redo the entire book because they threatened to sue, apparently. And, uh, Holy mackerel. Wow. He had to redraw the, all of the, you know, and the one that I had was the redrawn version. But. Yeah, yeah, with, with the nondescript uh, or non-copyrighted ca uh, 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 cartoon characters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, just wonderful stuff. Just a great way of uh, of learning uh, animation in the beginning when you're a kid. Yeah. I, uh, what was Preston Blair like? Oh, he was a lovely man. I mean, just a really nice guy. He lived in a... Uh, a, a house that was um, built by uh, um, Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright's student. Okay. And uh, he had all kinds of uh, uh, maquettes from Fantasia, and, mm. you know, spaced around in his house. And in his his garage, he had all these uh, butcher paper wrapped. Things I, from floor to ceiling, and I asked him, "What is what is all that?" He said, "Well, that's animation drawings from uh, from Fantasia and from uh, Red Hot Riding Hood, the famous cartoon that he, he worked on. All this stuff he had all in his garage wrapped wow. up." Wow. Now, now he was he, uh, Preston Blair was uh, his brother was Lee Blair who was married to Mary Blair, That's uh, right. one of the great Disney uh, art director designers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Lee Blair, of course, was uh, was a story man uh, at Disney's. Yeah, yeah. He he did. He held a number of positions, but uh, uh, and then eventually they they both moved uh, to uh, New York. I think he lived on the North Shore of Long Island, if I'm not mistaken, with okay, Mary. I'm not sure because I know his house out here was just sold. Yeah, his, yeah. His, in Mary Blair's house. Yeah. Uh, but but they had they had lived back on, on I think on the North Shore of Long Island for a little while because she was doing work for uh, I think she did um, 
Uh, she did work for Walt on uh, the uh, 64, 65 uh, uh, World's Fair. And she was doing that while she was living here. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Got moved to Disney World. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some of some of that material. Well, uh, of course, I mean, she did uh, a small world uh, for the Pepsi Cola Pavilion at right. the World's Fair, and and that obviously has been installed at all the. It seems like all the parks have have, have a version of that, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, but you you get to New York, you meet Jack Xander, he hires you. It, it was the New York animation scene uh, the kind of thing where you could work pretty steadily throughout the year, or was it all sort of a freelance project? by project basis? Well, I, I was hired to work there. Uh, I was almost let go a few months later because uh, they suddenly had no work. Yeah. Jack said, gee, we don't, we don't have anything for you to do. But then they got a job that uh, came in that I was able to work on, and I stayed there then for until, well, that was 73. I stayed there until 1981. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, that was a good run. So it was very steady, and they all they always had work after that. We did uh, um, did all kinds of uh, stuff. We did the I designed, by the way, the Cheerios B. <laughs> oh, is that right? The Honey Bee, the Cheerios, the Cheerios Honey Bee. Yes, yes. And one of uh, my favorites, by the way, Miss Regal, is uh, the Cookie Crisp, right? Yes. Yeah, because yes. I I was a big fan of of those cereals growing up, and I was like. That's your work. I know that. It's <laughs> amazing. We did that with Cage Beagle, uh, uh, Nancy and, and me, uh, our company. That's awesome. Uh, we got, uh, get, no, go ahead, Nancy. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves because you can't leave out the hands bare. Yes. It's <laughs> being redesigned from the old 1950s commercials. And uh, I started at Xander's in 1979. And I was hired when I was still at CalArts because Jack, thought I could draw like me, and I guess maybe he was right. <laughs> and uh, that was something he didn't expect to see happening. And I was I was recommended to go to Xander's by uh, someone at the Richard Williams studio, who said, drop in on my old pal Jack Xander, and Xander hired me on the spot. I was still in school, so we, we worked something out. Uh, I remember that studio, it was called Parlor because it was made to look like a turn-of-the-century whorehouse. <laughs> and we were in we were in the Young and Lubricam building. Tom Cito kindly reminded me of the location. And I thought it looked nice, but it had red velvet wallpaper, it had Cordello lamps, and in the bathroom was a American primitive painting of a woman who looked just like Ruth Buzzy in the old laugh in show as Gladys Orphy. And Jack put her, her painting right over the toilets. So any man using it would be judged by a scowling woman. <laughs> and the madman in that building hated the place so much they did not renew his lease so we had to move to 18 East 41st Street around 1980 I don't quite remember the date but it was definitely because we were working on a featurette called the Gnomes another thing where being designed the trolls as I recall yeah. uh, and uh, we worked also with Ori Battaglia from Disney and Johnny Johnny Jent was on that I believe I remember Ori pretty well Yes, yes. So you're getting a little ahead of yourself for, for Xander just yet. Mm -hmm. So we did do at least, we did one special. 
Was there, uh, I'm, I'm just curious in New York, where, aside from the commercial uh, aspect of animation, was there any children's television work going on there? Uh, in other words, like, you know, for uh, for Sesame Street or, or yeah. the, yeah. the ch- children's workshop uh, type stuff that they were doing locally? Yeah, there was stuff uh, being done at various studios for Sesame Street. Uh, we didn't do any, at least... Uh, that I recall at Xander's, but uh, there was a lot of lovely stuff. Uh, I think Howard Beckerman did some, and uh, um, I'm not sure to exactly which other studios did, but I think most of the stuff for Sesame Street was done in New York, most of their animation. Yeah. I'm not mistaken. And, and was it a fairly tight-knit group of people in the New York uh, City uh, animation community? I mean, I'm imagining it almost like London. I worked over on Who Framed Roger Rabbit in London, and there was there was a pub in London, in central London, that all the animation people would hang out at and go to on a Friday night. And so you kind of got, you circulated and, and got to meet a lot of these people. Well, we did meet people at uh, union meetings and... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, there was some kind of yearly get-together that we had, but uh, otherwise uh, there was no specific place to hang out. Right, right. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't really meet each other all that often, but uh, except that most people were working on a freelance basis. So, you know, we worked with them, you know, as freelance animators or, or whatever, uh, assistant animators and so forth. We were were two of the younger animators in New York at the time. And most of the people we were working with, we had an assistant named Ellsworth Barton who had worked at Max Fleischer. He had worked on Gulliver's Travels. Wow. He told him to be my grandfather. Wow. And so most of them were older than both Dean and me. And I could still see our production manager, Al Martina, not the singer. Al had this amazing face, you know, all teeth and gray hair. And he's, and he's standing in the doorway because I had to share an office with Dean because we were the only two who didn't smoke. And I can't <laughs> in an office with anybody smoking back when everybody smoked. So Al's standing in the door mercifully without a cigarette. And he says, you guys, you don't smoke. You don't drink. You ain't animators. What do you do? <laughs> and we just looked at him like morons. And I go, we watched cartoons. <laughs> and then we both started laughing. So, yeah, it was kind of an age there was a kind of an age gap then. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of people who were animators in New York also who worked on, uh, for instance, the Bullwinkle show. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, uh, oh, and also um, Roger Ramjet. And Terry, Terry Toons. Terry Toons. Oh, of course. Terry Toons. Yeah. Our best assistant, Eddie Cerullo, was in Terry Toons. Doug Crane, a wonderful animator and a wonderful guy, was a Terry Toons vet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Terry Toons was a, uh, by the time I started, uh, Terry Toons was gone, but uh, the studio was still there and they were selling out all of their uh, equipment. Mm. So I was just there at the at the end of Terry Toons, I think. Wow. And, and uh, did you hear stories about uh, the Fleischer Studios from from some of those folks? Uh, Only Ellsworth. What's that? Ellsworth, yeah. Yeah. Um, Occasionally, well, everybody would talk about the Fleischer Studios, but not from personal knowledge, I don't think. Yeah. Um, Johnny Gent, I believe, worked at uh, at Fleischer. Um, 
I'm trying to think if there was anybody but else in particular. They may have. I mean, everybody worked wherever they could, in the, you know, in the, at that at that time. And um, you know, well, Seamus Cohen was still around when we were in New York. Yeah, Seamus was still around. Yeah. The uh, John John Colhane's cousin who worked on Fantasia. Oh, well, he was good. Oh, yes. On the new Fantasia, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, on the original. Seamus Colhane was one of the animators on Seamus. the original. Not on, not on Fantasia. Seamus animated on Snow White. Yeah, he he, he and left Disney for Fleischer. And he came he came east for New York to work for Fleischer. Yeah, went to Florida, yeah. worked on Mr. Bug. Yeah, and uh, uh, John, uh, his cousin John Culhane, uh, was a great guy. Uh, he was a, a animation professor at NYU, and uh, he wrote the the uh, book on Fantasia, and he also wrote the book on Fantasia two thousand. Yeah, and I animated him in Fantasia two thousand. <laughs> in uh, in the um, uh, Rhapsody in Blue. That's right. Yeah. I'm coming through the door. Playing hopscotch with Margaret and Foo Foo the dog. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and that, by the way, was not the first time John was uh, caricatured in a Disney film. Uh, Paul Snoop didn't call, put him in rescuers. Yeah, as Mr. Snoops, <laughs> he was he was the Mr. Snoops was a caricature of John Culhane. Yeah, right, yes. absolutely, very fun, very fun. He's a very nice guy too. Very uh, yeah. Famous studio was great. He had, he produced the Bell uh, telephone series in the fifties, and that's before both our times. So New York had a long history of television animation. Yeah, I mean, New York just had a long history of animation and film. I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but most of the major film studios began their life in New York before they migrated out to Los Angeles. Uh, the, the the Astoria Studios in Queens uh, was the original Paramount Studios. Uh, and uh, uh, Universal was uh, based out of New York uh, originally. The Warner Brothers came from New York uh, out to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it was the place that didn't have enough sun, so we everybody moved out to. Yeah. Instead, yes. and, and you can make movies uh, year round, uh, pretty much out in Los Angeles with without too much weather interference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got into doing cartooning. Uh, so you were doing animation, which is you said was your first love, but you started doing some cartooning for uh, still cartoons for uh, Playboy. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Well, that was two thousand. Uh, so when I started doing that, and that was just, it was a fluke. I, I got a um, a poster sent to Cage Beagle Productions. Uh, they were sending this poster to every animation studio they could possibly find, which is how they found Cage Beagle. And uh, they were soliciting for some uh, animation for their uh, web, uh, not their web, their uh, cable channel. Uh and they wanted it was a contest you could win $25,000 if you uh, if you won this contest for a little piece of animation and i realized that it would cost at least $25,000 to do a piece of animation that was going to win that contest so i thought well i'm i'm not going to uh, try that but i'll send in i'll i'll do a couple of cartoons like they use in playboy the color and and so forth and I'll just send them in, and at least they'll see them, uh, you know. And and I got a call 
uh, from the uh, cartoon editor, uh, and she said, where have you been? And I yes, well, I've been in animation, and uh, uh, so I, I worked for them since then. Uh, Hefner said that he liked my Lady in the Tramp eyes on, on the girls that I drew. So, <laughs> Wow. Uh, if you look at my stuff, maybe you can see that connection. I don't know, but. But that's how I started there, and then I, I worked for them until they stopped having cartoons at all uh, about five years ago, I guess. Yeah, and I think they, they have since um, stopped publishing the, the uh, magazine. It's, uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're sort of re, reinventing themselves and doing everything digitally now. Yes. yes. I don't understand why Playboy had a reason to exist when it put out the cartoons and without the girls. That's what it was for. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, but you know, if you talk to most guys, they would say that um, they got Playboy because they like to read the stories. Yeah, articles. They did have a lot of great writers. Yeah. yeah no, they 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 absolutely did. They 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 did have some some terrific thought provoking articles in in the magazine. So I've heard. So. <laughs> and they had some great cartoonists. Some of which are a couple of which at least are are still around. Uh, Doug Snaid is, is one that I've uh, become friends with and uh, he's still around. And uh, uh, it, um, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of, there were actually people that had worked for Disney that worked for, uh, for Playboy from occasionally. And, and they, most of them also did uh, work for New Yorker. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they did uh, gag cartoons and gag cartoons was not something I thought I did. Um, because I thought I I needed a story to tell, and right. of course, in a gag cartoon, you have to compress the story all into one single drawing. And um, but I found out if you have a subject that uh, you know you have to work with, uh, it's not all that hard. It it it's, it worked out, and uh, you know I would get ideas from all over the place, and uh, I would do. Um, like a half a dozen drawings and send them in and then uh, Hefner would pick the ones he wanted and uh, and I'd do the finishes and they were very easy people to work for uh, very nice and they paid well so oh that's awesome that's always nice to hear that you know oftentimes you hear the horror stories yeah yeah you no know. they were they were good people to work for and, and did they play did they pay promptly oh yes Yes, much more so than almost anybody else. Well, you know, I mean, I, listen, I, you know, Disney, it's like 90 days, and I heard they're push, trying to push 120 days. Can you imagine that for an individual, you know, like freelancer or small studio to do that to them? It's awful. Yeah. It used to be like that. Disney used to always pay quickly. Not, always any, not, not anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of a shame. Dean, what do you do? You, do you feel like the uh, those types of uh, uh, cartoons that were in Playboy or the New Yorker? Do you do you think that is uh, sort of a uh, a dying art form, or or do you feel as though I mean, there's there, there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for a lot of people for that? Am I mm -hmm. right? magazines are, are just disappearing like like crazy of course yeah. uh, most of the the car the cartoon uh, 
the magazines that had cartoons in them, like Saturday Evening Post and Collier's and so forth, they were pretty much gone by the time I got into the business of uh, gag cartoons. But uh, uh, so then there was Playboy and New Yorker and uh, I guess a few others, but I, there's not not much to do in that respect. So you you do get people working online with their own cartoons. And I put out my own books now with the character that sure. you know, who was once in, but only once in Playboy. Uh, once I decided to use her as my character, I couldn't use her in Playboy anymore uh, for copyright reasons. But, yeah. Um, that's, um, that's what's keeping me alive for the <laughs> 50 Yeah, and I, I guess I was going to say, uh, um, doing uh, those types of like uh, cartoons, uh, it's really about uh, uh, building your audience and putting out um, uh, compilations, if you will, uh, uh, in book form. Is yes. that, is that, that that's pretty easy to, yeah. to, to, to say about it, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't do the same kind of thing exactly that I did in, in Playboy. I don't do gag cartoons anymore. Right. Uh, but I do, like, storylines, and I do sketchbooks with lots of characters in them and so forth. But um, they, um, uh, you know, it's, you just have to keep reworking yourself. You have to, as a cartoonist, I've, I've found that, you know, Every five years, something is going to change. So you'd better keep your eyes open and and be able to jump into whatever. So I did. I did. Uh, you know, characters for corporate clients as well. A lot of design uh, for for corporations. I did all the uh, uh, the Kool Aid uh, packages for a long time uh, were mine. And then the person that I did them for at General Foods uh, got another job somewhere, and I got work from him but uh lost kool-aid until somebody called me up from there and they said we heard about you we wonder if you'd like to do kool-aid packages they said well i've been doing them for 10 years already but uh so you you lose people and you gain people and people go other places and remember you and stuff uh, but uh that's the way it works and, and you seem to have uh, uh, been able to move from from one aspect to another, but still do what you love to do, and that's draw. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I've been very lucky, I have to say. Uh, uh, lucky to have found the places I found when I found them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I had always assumed that I was going to work for Disney. I, I actually came out to the Disney Studios when I was 14, uh, with my parents and uh, my my mother's cousin knew Bill Berg, who was a story man uh-huh. at Disney, and he got me into you know for a little uh, tour of Disney, uh, which was led by Winston Hibbler's daughter, by the way. At the oh time. wow, yeah. And um, I, I actually I actually know Winston Hibbler's grandson, uh-huh. uh, Chris Hibbler. Uh, Nancy, you may have met, remembered Chris Hibbler. He was head of operations at, at Disney Animation uh, for a number of years, uh, but he he was the grandson of uh, Winston Hibbler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a nice, and I did get to see uh, Walt Disney's car parked in the when I was fourteen. Uh, he was still alive. His uh, silver nineteen sixty one Thunderbird was in his spot. Wow! I never saw him during the 
tour, unfortunately. <laughs> and I was asked by the uh, by the hiring guy, personnel guy, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, I want to find out what I need to do to get to work here. And he said, well, first of all, don't be 14. And uh, <laughs> I, I uh, said, well, I, I can do that. I can I cannot be 14. Uh, give me a couple of years and, you know. But uh, after that, uh, at the time I was ready to try out at Disney's, uh, people were quitting. You know, it was not a not a good time, and uh, they didn't even want to see anybody's animation work anymore. They wanted to see uh, life drawings that you had done, so that they could then make you into a Disney artist. And uh, uh, so I about what time? Uh, what, what year was that? About do you recall? That would have been uh, about 19, oh, let's see. It would have been 77, 1977. Okay. I remember because our daughter uh, was with us and she was four. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's, uh, no, no, I'm wrong. She was six. She was six. I also came out to uh, uh, to interview with Ralph Bakshi, who was out here, uh, and I... I knew Johnny Vita, who lived in the, the the town that I lived in, Portchester, New York, uh, and he did all of Ralph's backgrounds. And I did I knew him very well. Uh, Johnny did backgrounds for us at Xander's too. So uh, so I got a call at two o'clock in the morning from Ralph and Johnny out here in, in California. Uh, obviously, a little uh, burning with a low blue flame. Uh, <laughs> As, as they they sounded drunk, let's put it that way. And, they, <laughs> and Ralph said, "So what do you want?" And I said, "Well, I, uh, I'm looking to see, you know, what you want." He said, "I see your stuff. Come, come out here, and you know." Uh, so that's what that's why I came out first to uh, to uh, I I went to Disney's and I went to uh, to his place. And at the time, they were working on the uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They were rotoscoping it all. And yeah. He wouldn't tell me what they were working on, Ralph. He said, come in, sit down, start to work, and I'll tell you what we're doing. And I, <laughs> but I that that sounds home. like Ralph. <laughs> I have a child who's six and she's going to first grade and I, I, I have, you know, dogs and I, all kinds of things I have to work out, uh, you know. So when I went back, I, I talked to Johnny and uh, he said, oh, yeah, well, they're rotoscoping. And I thought, all right, it's enough for me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. So so I didn't uh, I didn't join him. But uh, but that was, um, you know, that was how things were going at the time. It was uh, uh, not the best time to move. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that that period in the uh, mid to late 70s was, was sort of uh, heading into a, a, a real uh, valley, if you will, a, da- a real downturn in animation in Los Angeles, yeah. because, because they they had the big animation strike. A lot of uh, the Saturday morning work uh, left uh, to go overseas and be done over in in some of the Asian countries. Uh, and the only game in town uh, on a feature from a feature standpoint was really the Disney Studios with, of course, Ralph Bakshi during that period doing a handful of pictures himself as well. But, um, you know, that that was that was the, the scene at that point, would you say? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was not a good time to 
decide to move. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess I guess Richard Williams had his studio in Los Angeles too, right? Wasn't he doing uh Raggedy Ann and Andy? Uh Nancy. Well, that was in New York. New York. That was in New York. Oh, yeah. that was out of New York. Okay. Did, that was when I was a kid and I was actually still in Cal Arts and I was too shy to go in. I was I thought I couldn't get a summer job with Richard Williams. I'm not good enough. I was a complete idiot. But I also had to work and help my father with his business. And they were also leaving out the Bob Blackman studio that was very active in New York. And now, who was who that? I, I, I'm not familiar. Oh, Blackman, the Ink Tank. Ah, uh, oh, yes. Big studio in New York. And they, uh, didn't you work on the Soldier Story, Dean? Yes. yes. I was the only one in New York who didn't. And yeah. I really wanted to be on that. And I remember Tony Eastman saying, you know, you probably could get hired by Blackman if you were French. <laughs> I don't understand what Blackman means in German. It means Tin Man. He's a garbage man. This is the sloppiest person I never worked for. <laughs> it does not have to do with my work. But anyway, I didn't get to work on it, but Dean did. So it's a wonderful little film. No, when Richard was doing um, uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy out in New York, though, he did have a satellite studio out in Los Angeles uh, where some, some of the work was done. Is that correct? I don't know. I just know that Eric Goldberg and Dan Haskett both worked on that picture, and both of them, I believe, had their first professional jobs on that. Yeah. Yeah. Very nearby is Anders, too, somewhere, but uh, I'm not exactly sure where. Eric Goldberg worked at the Sanders, too. Really? I don't, he never said that to me, but maybe he They worked on the Ham's Beer Spots. So. Okay. That's, that sounds good for him. Yeah, <laughs> but it was still came in and showed his work, but there was no work to be given out at the time. But uh, so. you know, cer certainly Tom Cito was uh, 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 one of the New Yorkers uh, who migrated out to Los Angeles. We, I, Al John, we're going to have to get Tom on the show at some point too. He, <laughs> he's, he's got some great stories to tell. I know that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Getting back to Xander's, we had an incident when we moved from Madison Avenue to 41st Street. As I said, I shared an office with Dean, and he comes in one day. We were renovating the second floor of the building because we were doing the notes, and we were on 7th. And so you, you come into your office all smiles and go, guess what Juan Sanchez found in the window seat on the second floor? Well, of course, I'd seen arsenic and old lace, so I go, there's a body in the window seat. And Dean goes, how did you know? <laughs> It seems there was this can of cremains left in there for about 10 years, and they eventually found out it was by the woman's lover who had also died. This did not explain how the cremains got in the window seat, but of course, Jack, being a thrifty man, wasn't going to toss a perfectly good window seat out, even though the building was being renovated. So we stuck it in the hallway on the seventh floor. And so there's this white oblong box with a back and all the assistants are sitting on it, waiting for the elevator. And I come out and I go, oh, that's the one that Juan found the body in. And they all stood up like the Rockets. <laughs> and the window seat was gone the next day. <laughs> Jack's uh, character, I liked him a lot. He was just crazy. It was a crazy studio. Uh, yes. Did you remember the mouse you found? Yes. Yes, there was a mouse uh, <laughs> in my studio, in my room at the studio. You were there, right? No, it wasn't your room. It was the ink and paint room. Oh, okay. There was screaming coming out of the ink and paint room. And there was this <laughs> mouse that apparently had run uh, along someone's desk and then fallen into a garbage can. And uh, 
Ralph, uh, head of Ink and Paint, I, he, he said, I'll go kill it. And you yelled at the top of your lungs, you would be sweeping streets today if it weren't for a mouse. I'll take it out and let it go in the park. And so Dean puts this piece of wood or something on top of this garbage can and goes to take the elevator down the Young and Rubicon building, and it starts to make a scritching sound. There's two old women in the elevator with you, and they start to move away like, what's this weirdo doing? <laughs> You let it loose in the Needle Park, which is yes, now yes, at uh, yes. Bryant Park. And I said, that mouse is probably a junkie now. Right? Uh, <laughs> 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 that kind of studio. We had Jack screaming one time, there's a cockroach in my coffee. Oh, and I no. yelled back, that's a coffee bean with legs. What are you doing with the clients or... <laughs> well, Jack, when any, anybody asks me what's the best advice you ever got about animation, I said, well, Jack Sander gave it to me. Uh, this was before Nancy was uh, was at the studio, and the, I was the only one in that particular room. And um, at, at after lunch every day, like a lot of people, I get sleepy. <laughs> so I would put my head down on the desk and I, I was doing that one day and I heard Jack coming up the hallway. So I, I quickly awoke and started drawing and he came in and discussed the scene that I was, I was doing. And, and on his way out, he said, oh, by the way, there's, I have a, a little bit of advice for you. And I said, yeah, what's that? He said, when you go to sleep on your desk, don't put your head on your animation disc. You've got pin peg holes in your forehead. <laughs> so always pass that along to everybody. Yeah. That, that that's awesome. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> so, um, how long how long did you actually work in New York City? Did you do one long stretch and then move back out to La or move out to Los Angeles? Yeah, well, we Nancy and I uh, opened our studio in New York. I, I was in Westchester and, and Nancy was in the city. So we didn't have a studio as such. We just uh, worked in our own space. And then we hired people, uh, mostly from Xander's, Xander's people uh, who were freelancing at the time as assistants and uh, and we had people of course to do the ink and paint and to do uh background uh paint backgrounds and so forth so you basically had like a virtual studio yeah today like today's yeah like today it would be a virtual studio so you you guys were trailblazing a virtual studio you didn't yeah. actually have you didn't actually have to pay for uh rent on offices you just all worked out of your homes or home studios i call yes. it studio of convenience yeah. And it, it, it meant you didn't have to get work that you didn't want necessarily uh, that, uh, uh, you know, you didn't you weren't you didn't have other people on staff to pay. Sure. So, uh, you know, that's when I was doing a lot of uh, design work for corporate clients and so forth. It was just stuff that I could do myself. So that filled in between animation jobs. Yeah. It, it it wasn't I, there wasn't a robust amount of animation in New York compared to what 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 was going on in Los Angeles with all the you know you, even during the leaner times the, there was still you know a half a dozen studios that were producing you know uh, television animation and features and things like that but um, it, it was it was more of a tight knit group in New York City I would think. Actually, I, I was very lucky to work for Disney Character Merchandising, 
for six years and they were wonderful. Their headquarters was on Park Avenue. Uh-huh. Joke about going to my Park Avenue office, but they were wonderful. And anytime I needed work, I just called them up and say, hey, you got anything? Yeah, come on in, do some t-shirts. They were the real reason why I could stay in New York as long as I did, because we didn't pay ourselves. We only got money after everybody else was paid. Sure. After, you know, when we got the jobs. And I personally did not enjoy being a, a commercial producer, so I sold out to Dean and I went to Germany. You went to Germany? Yeah, I went to Europe. Wow. How long were you over in Europe? I didn't realize you were working over there. I worked in Berlin and London, and I did that mainly because I frankly didn't like L.A. very much, but also I was getting, for the first time since I teamed up with Dean, equal pay with men and chances for advancement. That simply did not happen in any studio other than Warner Bros. When I worked with Greg Ford, he hired me as a director. Yeah. And I like directing, I like working the story, and Disney, when I finally got out there on staff, was wonderful to me. I worked in development as well as production. I liked that arrangement very much. But my, uh, I know that I had better opportunities. Plus, I got to travel without having to you know, spend a lot of money. I was getting paid. Sure, sure. So to live abroad, and I worked for Steven Spielberg. I worked for Gerhard Hahn, who was like a Jack Zander in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Really good boss. He's actually still around and still producing and has hit shows. Wow. He was one of the best people I worked for. It was really uh, an interesting thing traveling around like that. But I only did it for about three years. I'm curious, though, Nancy, uh, uh, what was the favorite, uh, what was your favorite city to work in? I only worked in cities I liked, except for L.A. When I had to go back out, I went to work for uh, Greg Ford at Warner Brothers New York in 1991. And when that ended, I had to go to L.A. Everything else had just dried up. Yeah, yeah. And I was in in very early video games for a studio called Sidewalk, uh, which we did the Berenstein Bears and video games, and we did a really amazing little show, which someone just posted on YouTube. I hadn't seen it in the other 30 years, called The Crayon Factory. I forgot oh, yeah. how damn good that show was. Yeah, I, I've heard and I hired Dean to animate Pretty Girls. I am the first person to hire <laughs> me. Seriously, years ahead of Playboy, I was the first person to hire Dean to do Pretty Girls, because not for The Crayon Factory, we did the Surf City, with the Beach Boys, and one of the songs, a cutscene, was California Girls. And I just handed to Dean, I said, do anything you want. It's yours, just do it. That was fun. It I was wonderful, I wish I still had it, but those are the first time anyone hired Dean Yagel to draw Pretty Girls, I'm very proud of that. Crayon Factory was for little kids, I designed that one, but I gave Dean a whole sequence in that. It's called, the Newtown sequence is yours. And if you want to see the show again, it's up on YouTube, it's absolutely Wonderful. Holds up so well. Great script. Had a, Everyone had a ball working. And we, we were uh, working very, very early video games at 10 frames a second, hand-drawn animation. That, that's fantastic. You know, um, uh, before we wrap up our interview, I did want to ask Dean, where did you get your animation training, aside from the Walter Foster book? Uh, <laughs> well, in this little studio in, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, animation arts, it was called. And they, they did little spots for local spots and so forth. And they also did uh, a lot of work for the Navy. Uh, those weren't very interesting spots because they didn't usually involve characters. They involved atoms and things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff. But the, the stuff that they did locally, I got to design characters. I got to do ink and paint. I got to do backgrounds, I got to do whatever there was to do because it was a little company. And as yeah. long as 
didn't have something to do, they'd put you on something else. And but, in but, a way, that's what uh, happened at Xander's too. As I said, I started as a designer and, and then I did animation and then I became a director. Uh, so I, you know, other than ink and paint there, I did a little bit of everything, uh, layouts and uh, storyboards if that came up. Uh, but um, Did you go to art school at all or did you come out of high school and just... Uh, you know, I, you know? I went to art school uh, for a year um, in Philadelphia, a little place called Hushin School of Art. And uh, for the summer, I got this job in in Philadelphia in the little animation studio. Um, and, um, and I just decided to stay there. Uh, but then I had to go in the service or, or be drafted. So I, uh, uh, I had to leave there at, at that point, but uh, you, you did your four year break and went to Vietnam. Yeah, I didn't go to Vietnam. I was on a destroyer in the Mediterranean for the most part. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So, so it was during the Vietnam war, but you didn't actually have to go over there, which is fabulous. Yes, yes. Because that's basically why I joined the Navy. Uh, well, the other reason actually was that the the boss at the animation studio in Philadelphia uh, had worked uh, during World War II in an animation department of the Navy. Oh, wow. And that was still around. It was in, in D.C. And he got me connected to them. And they said, OK, you join the Navy and we'll hire you. And I joined the Navy and I called the guy up and I said, okay, I'm in the Navy. And he said, oh, well, uh, we just had our budget cut and we can't. <laughs> so I was tricked into the Navy. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, I, I, I always tell people that I think the first six, six months to a year that you're working at a studio, you probably learn more than you learned in art school anyway. You know, yeah. we, and and Nancy, I mentioned that the, at the top of our interview, you went to Cal Arts, and and you were there when uh, I think you were ahead of me, but we we had a lot of the same similar teachers. Uh, Jack Hanna was running the department, right? I was in the first class, so yeah, I was ahead of you. I don't remember. Frankly. Oh, you were way ahead of me then. If you were in the first class, what year was that? Seventy nine. I I went to Sanders in seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. Um. I actually didn't attend my own graduation, but in the case of the teachers, you would have had the same ones for sure. Yeah. Uh, Bill Moore. Yeah. Elmer Plumbing. Yeah. All, all of them. It was a, a, a great group of, uh, of uh, Disney veterans. Except for Moore. <laughs> Except for Bill Moore, who was the design teacher and was an absolute character, wasn't he? He actually is a character in a novel. And if I had known this novel would become a bestseller, I would have written it. It's called The Cheese Monkeys. And someone at uh, Sheridan College was talking about the book and said, there's this teacher who comes in in this book and he takes out a cigarette lighter and burns all the assignments off the walls. And my jaw is on the table. I go, that's my teacher. That was Bill Moore. That yeah. was Bill Moore. I, and he's the best character in the book. But, of course, he didn't do that to Cal Arts. He did it at Arts Center. But he was talking about it all the time and everybody knew about it. 
Yeah, and everybody was bracing themselves anytime he walked. Well, you know, you pinned your your project up on the uh, onto the bulletin board, and he would come in with a cigarette in hand, and he would be walking down the board, looking at each project, and people were bracing themselves for: Is he going to pull out a lighter and light one of them on fire? <laughs> you know, <laughs> all my critiques from him were generally four-letter words, one or two, one or two words, until I started getting it. Yeah. But anyway, to get back to New York, I haven't forgotten anybody. And we had, there was quite a lot in the 80s there. I mean, they did the Doug show. They did a lot of really good TV shows there. But we yeah. weren't on those. And, and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the, um, oh, what do they call them? The uh, Conjunction Junction. Uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the House Rocks thing. The, the, yeah, the, Phil uh, Kimmelman did those. Yeah. Those were the, um, uh, the schoolhouse rocks uh, thing, right? Little schoolhouse rocks. That, that was it. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, yeah. Al John. Yeah. Al John, do you have some questions? Actually, I, I do. And, you know, in being, uh, being a musician in Nashville, um, there is something called like a Nashville style or, you know, when, when you hear different productions of music and guitar playing, the different styles that are apparent through the different sides, West Coast, you know, uh, Nashville, New York style, Chicago style. With the art style in New York, you know, knowing, you know, your education and, and the scene where you came from, the type of art that you've developed yourself, your own style, and the Marvel style, which I'm uh, very familiar with, also coming from New York and, and all the different publications because of the different publications in that area, Dean, uh, that you had kind of referenced, is there a, a an art style um, per se um, that that is kind of prevalent or a style uh, out of New York versus and, and Dave you can you can speak to this as well versus something of a West Coast style um, and has it changed over the years especially Nancy with with you teaching uh, has that style changed or progressed over the years well. <laughs> I know it's a weird I don't question. I think but. there's a there's a difference. For one thing, a lot of the people in New York went to uh, came out here to to California. So uh, you know, there was art was art, uh, especially comics. Comics are done all over the country, all over the world, of course. And uh, so the you know it depends on what style you happen to like. Uh, the only comics that I really was influenced by was Carl Barks and, uh, you know, the duck comics and the funny animal comics as they were called. And certainly Walt Kelly from Pogo and so forth. So I, I, I never got into superhero stuff, but, uh, you know, the, the one thing I'd say about your question, Al John, is that, um, I think that, um, Music uh, has influenced uh, the New York animation scene a little bit more uh, and has differentiated it from from Los Angeles, at least early on, you know, because when when you look at the early Disney cartoons, there's this sort of Midwestern quality uh, to them. Whereas when you look at those early Fleischer cartoons that were being produced out of New York, you've got that jazz influence 
influence. And there, there's a, you know, I, I kind of touched on that in a documentary I did called the tunes behind the tunes. Yes. Uh, and, but, but animation styling, you know, as Dean pointed out and Nancy, I'm sure you would agree. Um, you know, the artists were, were sort of migrating back and forth and, and moving from New York out to Los Angeles. So, so stylistically each animation house probably had its own sort of, you know, house style, if you will. Well, you would hire a commercial studio for their style. I mean, Xander obviously was, he had, they had Dean and you didn't get to work with Dean with any other studio. If you wanted that style, you had to go to Xander's. Bob Blackman's Ink Tank, if you wanted Blackman's style, well, we did a couple in that style. But one of the real thing, you had to go to Bob Blackman. It really depended on the studio. But getting back to the style difference, I wouldn't say that existed after the 1950s when the theatrical animation shuts down. And I'll t I can tell you something Seamus Culhane said to me because he worked at Fleischer and then went out to Disney and retrained. And he once looked at me and said, you seem to like a lot of the crap we did back at Fleischer. <laughs> and I said, I, I love these cartoons. They're fun. He goes, no, they're not. Disney's much better. And he wouldn't be persuaded otherwise. Technically, they're better. But they're both good. You can like both. I sure. really enjoy the surreal Fleischer cartoons, particularly one Seamus directed called Swing You Sinners in 1930, which is one of the most influential cartoons of its decade. Mm. He said, none of us knew what we were doing. Well, sometimes great art is made by people who are still learning how to do it. They, they were inventing it back then. I even heard Jack Zander bold his way into animation. He told me, he said, they, oh, they said, can you animate? He said, sure. And he'd never done it in his life. But back then, 1929, no one else had either. <laughs> Nobody had very, jobs. But yeah, very he was, true. He was very good. He was a very good animator. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Jack used to hire New Yorker cartoonists to design cartoons too, uh, or sometimes the the agencies would hire them. And we we want to use, uh, and, and in fact, they used Thurber style. Thurber wasn't around anymore, but uh, I did a little job using his style. And uh, but they used Chuck Saxon. They used George Booth. Cool. Uh, they used um, Ed Sorrell. Uh, Dan Sorrell, yes, I did a I did a spot with Ed Sorrell, uh, Rick Marowitz, who was uh, uh, he got censored for that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, hey, we got to meet and work with a, a bunch of uh, interesting cartoonists. Uh, Chuck Saxon came in one day, and he was talking to Ed Cirillo, who was the assistant, who was working on his job, and he said, "All right, well, let me show you how I draw hands," and he. He said, see, this this picture you have here, this isn't quite right. And so we, you know, went through it and, and Ed said, okay, that's fine. And after he left, he told everybody he had drawn that original picture that he was <laughs> fixing. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my drawing. That was his. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, well, I, have a, well, I do yeah, have a couple ahead. more questions. Yeah, yeah. If I could. Uh, first of all, I'll ask uh, Nancy. Um, you've been involved with... Disney and the Toon Studios and doing so many great films for for Warner's and all this. Is there a particular character or particular work that you did for any of those studios, including, um, you know, an American Tale, which was great as well. But uh, is there a particular piece that you're um, a film that you're really just like, this is great. This is like, this is me. I really I really had a lot of fun doing this particular project. 
I never worked for anybody I didn't enjoy working for. That's why I traveled. I, instead of staying in L.A., where I would have to work with what was there, I preferred to travel if I said, oh, they're doing Don Martin commercials in Germany. That sounds like fun. I'll try for that. That's one of my favorites is working out for Dad Hahn on the Don Martin commercial, which overthrew the Swedish government. But that's another story. I tell everybody I helped overthrow the Swedish government. <laughs> right. I absolutely adored working on Daffy Duck, or Bunny Donald Duck, all of them, really. And designing my own characters at Disney Features was fun, too. Yeah. I didn't work on Goofy Movie was, I think, of the, all the projects I worked on, probably the best. Although it wasn't the best experience, no fault of Disney's. It was a really solid little movie that holds up very, very well. It does. And 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 then people love it, which makes all of us who worked on it very happy. Exactly. It's very Nancy, beloved. I re- yeah. If I remember correctly, you did uh, a student film. I think it was a student film. Your feet are too big for dancing? It's not a student film. It was made while I was at Sanders. Okay. She that was too it. big. It's Pat's wallet. You 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 went to you went to New York and did that okay so it's and, it was many years ago so I but I remembered it because I I marveled at uh, the beautiful animation you did on that. Thank yeah. you. I remember when I had to get it approved by Maurice Waller before RCA would let me have the music, and he came to Xander's and Jack walks up and goes, "I saw your father perform, great musician," and I was scared to death because Maurice Waller looked just like his dad. Wow. He turned out to be a really sweet man who loved the film. And I've made two other independent films since then. One is called The Other Eden. And the third, was we made in 2017, was The Short History of Indians in Canada, which I made with one of the top writers here, Thomas King. I liked every film I worked on. I didn't stay with jobs I didn't want. That's a, that's a, a good good way to live. Yeah, right? it's, it's interesting. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. Works for me. Um, Dean, I have to ask. You know, you, one of your enduring characters uh, that you talked about in many Comic Cons and, of course, have the statues and, and all the great art and sketchbooks is Mandy. And I have to ask, uh, and you may have answered this many times before in your panels, but uh, is Mandy based on someone and a real a real person? Uh, you, you can see Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot in her, maybe, but uh, uh, she was drawn first for a cartoon in Playboy. And um, I just wanted a sort of innocent-looking blonde character uh, with pigtails, big pigtails and so forth. And uh, uh, so she was in that. And then when I had to do something for a, uh, a group of us that were working online uh, and giving each other something to draw, draw this character, you know, it was what we were doing. And so I pulled her out of that. And that's where she became mine, and I named her Mandy. And uh, somebody in France suggested I named her Mandy because I'm a man and my initials are D-Y. (laughs) 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 Which never occurred to me, but... uh, (laughs) That is one of the best uh, answers I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great great explanation. Oh, it is. It (laughs) is. Why not? So, so, so in, 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 if you were to have that, that, that one character, Mandy would be like, like the, the head of the head of the line for you, right? Mandy's oh, kind she's of my Mickey Mouse. She's, right. She's the one I drew her so that she had certain things that I could call, well, it's the Mickey Mouse here. She had the big, big uh, pigtails. She had uh, bows. She has this one piece of hair that comes down between her eyes. That's all 
just her, uh, you know, so, you know, she's recognizable in that respect. And she's sort of a, a Disney style. Everybody sees that, you know, yeah, she, yeah. Uh, but, uh, very reminiscent to me of a young Suzanne Summers from uh, three's company. Uh, when okay. she first entered the entered the scene, I think it was one of her first uh, first things. She came in, Chrissy. She had the, the 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 pigtails, and I was thinking she reminds me a lot of of, of Mandy, the character. But uh, I, I that, that didn't occur to me. But uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, it's it's very good. Well, though it, it like I said, just great stuff. And I know um, I know Dean, you do those comic cons, and you're very gracious to the fans, and I see that, and it's great. And Nancy, I I don't know if you uh, go comic cons especially um anything like that but i know the fans would love to meet you at some point so on behalf of the fans if you ever you know now that we're kind of you know leaving this whole 2020 behind us and we're moving forward and everyone's getting some fresh air i do hope that you uh meet the fans because i know they want to see you they want to they want to meet you um with all the great work you've done over the years for the various studios so your fans would love to see you so that's all I'll say uh, for today. But thank you so much for uh, joining us in these uh, great Q and A's. I love it. Well, thank you. And when this is over, as we say here in Canada, maybe we can all meet up. Well, uh, and Nancy, we're going to have you back on because you and I have communicated, and we want you on uh, just to talk about your career in its entirety, and it's still going. Uh, and uh, Dean, I want to say thank you very much for coming on our show and talking with yeah. us about your career and uh, some of the great work that you've done, and some of the some of the great people you worked with over the years in New York and Los Angeles. Thank you. It was fun. We'll see you both soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Nancy. Skull Rock Podcast, your weekly dose of pixie dust. All right. What a great talk. Man, two for the price of one today. That was a, a wonderful surprise having Nancy Beeman join in. Uh, she she actually I've known her for years, and she was the the one who connected us with uh, Dean Yeagle. So it was great hearing about the the whole New York animation scene. I really really enjoyed the conversation with them. Oh, so did I. And you know, they were involved in so many great things. Um, and I I had no idea. I I knew Dean's work, but I really. Got, these interviews give me a chance to really dive deep into the catalog, into the uh, portfolio, if you will, of these artists. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how many things he's been involved with over the course of many, many, many decades um, of things that you love. You know, whether it's the comics, because I know he did the the he did some work for Marvel and did some penciling for Marvel and the Muppets. And I owned those comics. I owned them. You know, so I was, I owned his art. I've, I've known his, uh, you know, his different portfolios and the different characters he's created over the years. And I swear, Dave, one of these days I will have, um, Dean's, uh, caricatures on, uh, one of my guitars and, uh, have like that graphic art because he, his art is so, um, I know it's just, it's just great. It's uh, it's beautiful art, but it's a lot of fun. I think that's what I love about Dean's art is that it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and Nancy, what a great animator she is, you know, instructor up at Sheridan college and, you know, an author, she's working on a new book and I mean, she's just terrific. I can't wait to have her back because I understand she was the first credited female or I'm sorry, the second credited female, um, for a Disney film. Um, you know, and although there's been so many females to work uncredited, 
uh, for Disney. But I want right. to kind of delve into that a little bit, you know, because uh, it's great when we have the the women of animation on the show to kind of talk about their craft and about the experiences they've had. So looking forward Absolutely. to having you back. And, and by the way, we've got some great guests coming up uh, next week. We have Kirk Wise, co-director of Beauty and the Beast, yes. Hunchback, Atlantis, Cranium Command. We're yes. going to be talking about all of it with him. Can't wait. Um, We've got Marshall Toomey coming up the week after that. Uh, he's a key cleanup artist, a painter, an illustrator, uh, just an all-around great guy. Max Howard, the studio chief uh, for our London studio for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as well as running the uh, studio down in Orlando, Florida. Uh, in May, we've got Jorgen Klubin, who is an animator, story artist, and a Danish rock star. I love that. I love that. <laughs> uh, gotta, gotta, love, gotta love a good Danish. I really do. <laughs> but uh, once again, I'm looking forward to all those great guests. And by the way, if you love Disney and pop culture as much or more than Dave and myself, yes, Yes, please like us on all the social media, subscribe to the show, leave us those five-star reviews. You know, we're on so many different uh, platforms now, so thank you for your support. If you're indeed uh, subscribed, we do appreciate it. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, Google, Overcast, Pocket Cast, um, you know, iHeartRadio, Anchor. Anchor, of course. Uh, the list goes on and on. But uh, be sure to check us out on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, the website, SkullRockPodcast.com. And drop those emails, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Dave, I'll leave you with the final words. Hey, I just want to tell you, uh, please uh, go out, be kind to people, peace and love to you all. And uh, hopefully it's going to stop raining here in New York. And I'll have a couple of clear days before I head back to Los Angeles with the Skull Rock Podcast mobile recording studio. All right. Sounds great, Dave. Safe travels to you, my friend. And we'll see you on next week's edition of Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. 
visit thedisneylist.com.